Chapter 47. The Ghouls. Barrington didn't do any more work that day. But before going home, he went to the doctor's house, and the latter dressed the cuts on his head and arms. Philpott's body was taken away on the ambulance to the mortuary. Hunter arrived at the house shortly afterwards, and at once began to shout and bully because the painting of the gable was not yet commenced. When he heard of the accident, he blamed them for using the rope, and said that they should have asked for a new one. Before he went away, he had a long, private conversation with Crass, who told him that Philpot had no relatives, that his life was insured for ten pounds in a society of which Crass was also a member. He knew that Philpot had arranged that, in the evening of his death, the money was to be paid to the old woman with whom he lodged. He was a very close friend. The result of this confidential talk was that Crass and Hunter came to the conclusion that it was probable that she would be very glad to be relieved of the trouble of attending to the business of the funeral, and that Crass, as a close friend of the dead man and a fellow member of the society, was the most suitable person to take charge of the business for her. He was already slightly acquainted with the old lady, and so he would have to go and see her at once, and get her authority to act on her behalf. Of course, they wouldn't be able to do much until after the inquest, but they could get the coffin made, as Hunter knew the mortuary keeper there would be having no difficulty about getting in for a minute to measure the corpse. The matter having been arranged, Hunter departed to order a new rope, and shortly afterwards Crass, having made sure that everyone would have plenty to do while he was gone, quietly slipped away to see Philpot's landlady. He went off so secretly that the men did not know that he'd been away at all till they saw him come back just before twelve o'clock. The new rope was brought to the house about one o'clock, and this time the ladder was then raised without any mishap. Harlow was put on the paint on to paint the gable and he felt so nervous that he was allowed to have Sorkins to stand by and hold the ladder all the time. Everyone felt nervous that afternoon, and they all went about their work in an unusually careful manner. When Bert had finished lime-washing the cellar, Crass set him to work outside, painting the gate of the side entrance. And while the boy was thus occupied, he was accosted by a solemn-looking man who asked him about the accident. The solemn stranger was very sympathetic, and inquired what the name of the man was who had been killed, and whether he was married. Bert informed him that Philpot was a widower, that he had no children. "'Ah, well, that's so much the better, then, isn't it?' said the stranger, shaking his head mournfully. "'Yeah, it's a dreadful thing, you know, when there's children left unprovided for.' "'You didn't have to know where he lived, do you?' "'Yes,' said Bert, mentioning the address and beginning to wonder what the solemn man wanted to know for, and why he appeared to be so sorry for Philpot, since it was quite evident that he never knew him. "'Well, thank you very much,' said the man, pulling out his pocket-book and making a note of it. "'Thank you very much indeed. Good afternoon,' and he hurried off. "'Yeah, well, good afternoon, sir,' said Bert, as he turned to resume his work. Crass came along the garden path just as the mysterious stranger 
was disappearing round the corner. "'What on earth did he want?' said Crass, who had seen the man talking to Bert. "'Well, I don't exactly know. He was asking about the accident and whether Joe had any children and where he lived. He must be a very decent sort of chap, I should think. He seemed quite sorry about it.' "'Oh, he does, does he?' said Crass, with a peculiar expression. "'Don't you know who he is?' No, replied the boy. I thought perhaps he was a, a reporter of a paper. He ain't no reporter. He's the old Snatchum, the undertaker. He's smelling around after a job. But he's out of it this time. Smart as he thinks he is, eh? Barrington came back the next morning to work, and at breakfast time there was a lot of talk about the accident. They said that it was all very well for Hunter to talk like that, about the rope, but he had known for a long time that it was nearly worn out. Newman said that only about three weeks previously, when they were raising a ladder at another job, he'd shown the rope to him, and misery had replied, there was nothing wrong with it. Several others besides Newman claimed to have mentioned the matter to Hunter, and each of them said that he'd received the same sort of reply. But when Barrington suggested that they should attend the inquest and give evidence to that effect, they all became suddenly silent, and in a conversation Barrington afterwards had with Newman, the latter pointed out that if he were to do so, it would be no good to Philpot. It would not bring him back, but it would be sure to do himself a lot of harm. He'd never get another job at Rushton's, and he probably many of the other employees would mark him down as well. Yeah, well, so you say. Anything about it, concluded Newman. Don't bring my name into it if you do. Barrington was constrained to admit that, all things considered, he was right. It was right for Newman to mind his own business, and right that he felt that way that it would not be fair to urge him or anyone else to do or say anything which would injure themselves. Misery came to the house about eleven o'clock and informed several of the hands that, as work was very slack, they'd get their back pay at pay time. He said that the firm had tendered for one or two jobs so they could call round about Wednesday and perhaps he might then be able to give some of them another start. Barrington was not one of those who was stood off, although he had expected to be, on account of the speech which he'd made at the Beano, and everyone said that he would have got the push sure enough if it had not been for the accident. Before he went away, Nimrod instructed Owen and Crass to go to the yard at once, and there they would find Payne, the carpenter, who was making Philpot's coffin, which would be ready for Crass to varnish by the time they got there. Misery told Owen that he'd left the coffin plate and the instructions with Payne and added that he was not to take too much time over the writing, because, well, it was a very cheap job. When they arrived at the yard, Payne was just about finishing the coffin, which was of elm. All that remained to be done was the pitching of the joints inside, and Payne was to act as a sort of lifting the pot of boiling pitch off the fire to do this. It was such a cheap job that there was no time to polish it properly, so... Crass proceeded to give it a couple of coats of spirit varnish, and while he was doing this, Owen wrote the plate. 
which was made very thin as zinc lacquered over to make it look like brass. Joseph Philpot died September the 1st, 1902, aged 56 years. The inquest was held on the following Monday morning, and as both Rushton and Hunter thought it possible that Barrington might attempt to impute some blame to them, they had worked the oracle and had contrived to have several friends of their own put on the jury. There was, however, no need for their alarm, because Barrington could not say that he had himself noticed or called Hunter's attention to the state of the rope and he did not wish to mention the names of the others without their permission. The evidence of Crass and the other men who were called was to the effect that it was a pure accident. None of them noticed that the rope was unsound. Hunter also swore that he didn't know of it. None of the men had ever called his attention to it, and if they had done, so it would have been procured, they'd have procured a new one immediately. Philpott's landlady and Mr. Rushton were also called as witnesses, and the end was that the jury returned a verdict of accidental death, and added that they did not think any blame attached to anyone. The coroner discharged the jury, and as they and the witnesses passed out of the room, Hunter followed Rushton outside, with the hope of being honoured by a little conversation with him on the satisfactory issue of the case but Rushton went off without taking any notice of him. So under returned to the room where the court had been held to get the coroner's certificate authorising the internment of the body. The document is usually handed to the friends of the deceased or to the undertaker acting for them. When Hunter got back to the room, he found that during the absence, the coroner had given it to Philpott's landlady, who had taken it with her. The accident accordingly hastened outside again to ask her for it, but the woman was nowhere to be seen. Crass and the other men were also gone. They hurried off to return to work, and after a moment's hesitation, Hunter decided, well, it didn't matter much about the certificate. Crass had arranged the business with the landlady, and he could get the paper from her, from her later on. And having come to this conclusion he dismissed the subject from his mind. He had several prices to work out that afternoon, estimates for some jobs the firms was going to tender for. That evening, after having been home to tea, Crass and Sawkins met by appointment at the carpenter shop to take the coffin to the mortuary where Misery had arranged to meet them at half-past eight. Hunter's plan was to have the funeral take place from the mortuary, which was only about a quarter of an hour's walk from the yard. So, tonight, they were just going to lift in the body and get the lid screwed down. It was blowing hard and raining heavily when Crass and Sorkin set out, carrying the coffin covered with a black cloth on their shoulders. They also took a small pair of chessels for the coffin to stand on, Crass carried one of these slung over his arm, and Sawkins the other. On their way they had to pass the cricketers, and the place looked so inviting they decided to stop and have a drink, just to keep the damp out, and as they couldn't get on very well or take the coffin inside with them, they stood it up against the brick wall, a little way out from the side of the door. 
as Crass remarked with a laugh that it was not much of a danger of anyone pinching it. The old deer served them, and just as they finished drinking the two pints, there was a loud crash outside, and Crass and Sawkins rushed out and found that the coffin had blown down and was lying bottom upwards across the pavement, while the black cloth had been wrapped around it was out in the middle of the muddy road. Having recovered this, they shook the much of the dirt off as they could, and having wrapped it round the coffin, they resumed their journey to the mortuary, where they found Hunter waiting for them, engaged in earnest conversation with the keeper. The electric light was switched on, and as Crass and Sawkins came in, they saw that the marble slab was empty. The corpse was gone. Yes, well, Snatchum came in this afternoon with a hand truck and a cord uh, coffin, exclaimed the keeper. I was out at the time, and the missus thought it was all right, so she let him have the key. Hunter and Crass looked blankly at each other. Well, this takes the biscuit, said the, the latter as soon as he could speak. I thought you said that you'd settled everything all right with the old woman, said Hunter. Yeah, well, so I did, said Crass. I've seen her on Friday, and I told her to leave it all to me to attend to, and she said she would. I told her the Philpot said to me that if ever anything happened to him, I was to take charge of everything for her because I was his best friend, and I told her we'd do it as cheap as possible. Yeah, well, seems to me as you bungled it somehow, said Nimrod gloomily. I ought to have gone and seen him myself. I was afraid you'd make a mess of it, he ended in a wailing tone. It's always the same. Everything I don't attend to myself. Yeah, it always goes wrong. 